everyone, my name is Erin Hughes and this is Episodes to Wellbeing at Work. When we think about factors that impact our health, typically we focus on things like nutrition, how much physical activity we get, our sleep habits, or our relationship with our doctor. But research is showing that other factors, referred to as social determinants of health, can actually impact up to 80% of an employee's health outcomes. To learn more about this, we spoke with two experts from Ohio Health. Ernest Perry, the Senior Advisor of Diversity and Inclusion, and Autumn Glover, the Senior Director of Community Health Partnerships. We discussed how employers can use data to take the first step in learning which determinants are most strongly impacting their population, as well as interventions that you can build into your benefits and wellness strategy right now to start making an impact. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Episodes to a Healthy You. My name is Bridget McCullough, and today we're going to be talking about social determinants of health. And if you don't know what that means or what they are, or if you've heard about the concept, but you feel like you want to understand it more, this is definitely a great episode for you. And what I'm most excited about and definitely most interested in learning more about is the connection between social determinants of health and wellness in the workplace. So today we have two incredible guests from Ohio Health. We have Autumn Glover and Ernest Perry. Welcome to the podcast, you two. Thank you. Thanks, Bridget. So to get us started, let's just talk broadly about social determinants of health. What does that mean and what are some examples? Sure, so I can kick us off, Ernest. The social determinants of health also acronym SDOH, social needs. I'm sure there's other new ways that we're framing these things, but social determinants of health are the conditions where we live. So it's where you live and how you live and how it impacts your health. Examples of social determinants of health are where people are born, where they live, where they go to school or their access to school, where they work. Do they have places to play and recreation, their church? this range of things that impact our quality of life outcomes and things that ultimately for some of those in our community end up being risks for them. I don't know, Ernest, if you add anything to that. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And a couple of ideas kind of jump out to me from your description. I think first, you know, I hear your emphasis on physical space and geography. That might be your planning background coming out there. The other thing that I that I hear you say is that these are non-clinical factors, right? A lot of times when we think about health, or maybe even most times we think about what influences health, we think about the types of things that have to do with medicine and healthcare practice. But what Autumn really describes is the things that happen around us that are non-clinical. And in fact, it's the majority of our experiences that have to do with where you live, what kind of access to fresh fruits you have, is your transportation reliable? Who's in your social network? How dense is it? What's the quality of it? What information does it give you access to? What types of jobs are proximate to where we live and and how much access do we have to those jobs? All those things converge at individuals and influence our health in ways that far surpass anything that happens based on our usual encounter with a healthcare system or a healthcare provider. Absolutely. That was a great introduction. Thanks, both of you. And I know today we want to talk a little bit about the connection between social determinants of health 
and employee wellness. For me, what stands out, and I'm going to let you both weigh in, but reminding ourselves that work in itself is a social determinant of health. You know, whether you have a job, what kind of job you have, what the pay looks like, what the benefits look like, if you even have benefits or health care, whether your work environment is safe, both physically, psychologically. And I think about right now, great resignation, great reshuffling, whatever you want to call it. Not everyone has the privilege to walk away from a bad job mm-hmm. for many reasons. It could be the access to jobs that are within their community, some rural areas, there's not a lot of opportunities. It could be based on their education, their skill set, et cetera. But that really jumps out to me. But I'd love to hear more from both of you in terms of, again, that connection between social determinants of health and employee wellness. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that you just touched on, Bridget, is really important to think about the ability to choose, right? Everything that you just described and and even some of our earlier framing around STOH is the ability to have choices in your life. And so really at the height of the pandemic, and I think one of the greatest learnings of the pandemic is that we're not just talking about social determinants of health, we're talking about social determinants of work. And really this was elevated as a result of the pandemic. And there are a couple of things that are connected to this notion is that having a job and the ability to have job flexibility varies based on who you are and where you come from. Having universal health care, access to childcare, can you get to work? Do you live in proximity to your office and where you work? Is there affordable housing close to where you work? But then also, is there effective transportation, right? So is there a bus that's going to get you there safely on time and in a location that doesn't create another barrier for you to get there? But then also the access to educational benefits, right? And the ability to continue to grow. So these are absolutely ideas that are connected to employee wellness and really people's desire to stay in a place where they feel supported. So I really am interested. I know Ernest works most closely with our associates and and culture we're trying to build at Ohio Health. So I'm curious if you have other thoughts. Sure. If you did a great job capturing the kind of employer dimension of wellness and all those things that come as a result of being gainfully employed and earning a living wage, right? There's financial benefits, uh, there's social benefits. And I think a lot of what we learned over the last couple of years with the advent of large scale hybrid and remote work is what a social place the workplace is for a lot of people. And many folks didn't do well when we went to fuller hybrid or full remote work situations after the lockdown because those really important relationships in their lives are relationships that they have created in the workplace. So I think the social benefits of work are huge, and that's a huge social determinant. There are a ton of non-monetary benefits that people get access to that we'll probably talk about a little bit later on in this conversation. But then at the individual dimension, the start of this talk, the three of us are really sharing what our some of our experiences have been over the last couple of years and how health in our experiences with health in our personal lives, with our families, with our children, our children's school, like how all those come together and we discuss those in the workplace. And I think that's the other thing that we've really become attuned to is that the wall of separation between what happens in an individual's personal or social life uh, once they leave work and what happens at work 
is no longer really hard and fast, right? I mean, that, that wall is very permeable if it exists at all. And so the intersection between social determinants and employee wellness is very strong now. And it's a thing that more and more employers who really want to be competitive have realized they got to get their arms around and take the lead on because they can't ignore it anymore. Mm-hmm. Something else that I really think about in the context of traditional wellness, when you think about what we're telling people to do to take care of their wellness and why we do workplace wellness in the first place, if people are dealing with some of the things that we're talking about, not only does it directly impact their well-being, but also it's going to take precedent over other things that an employer might be suggesting that they do to improve their health, right? Like mm-hmm. exercise or mindfulness or, you know, taking care of their nutrition. I mean, if you can't get food on the table, if you can't pay your bills, if you're struggling with your the work environment in any way, those things are all going to take precedent over those things. And so when we talk with employers about why social determinants of health should matter to them, part of it is about work, the work environment itself and how that can impact health. But then also it may be taking precedent over some of these expectations we have of people managing their health. Mm-hmm. It's both direct and indirect. Absolutely. And I would argue to uh, Bridget to that exact point. The reality is that I think there was a period of time where we didn't ask these questions. And so one of the things that I think about for employers is we should be asking our associates not just do you want to do this mindfulness training, which I think is also a powerful tool, but ask them what their access to food is like. Ask them, do they feel like they have a safe place to live? Do they have barriers to getting and sustaining our work? I think there's lots of discussion and and frankly, there was a lot of praise at the height of the pandemic, the first height, I should say, of the pandemic about the frontline labor force. But I'm not sure that all of us have taken the step of saying, And what can I do to make you feel supported, right? A lot of those associates were still riding the bus to work. They were still living in communities that lacked grocery stores. But really it is, okay, now we know, right? We have this awareness, but then what do we do about it? How do we confirm it at our local level? And then, of course, hopefully address it as well. That's actually the perfect segue to my next question. So you already started talking about it. Where do you think an employer can have influence on social determinants of health? And one of the things that you mentioned, which I think is a good one, is around assessing what's going on with your people, asking them, determining Mm -hmm. what's happening there, and then connecting them to resources to support them. So I feel like that's number one. But what are other ways that an employer can really have influence? One of the areas where we have seen employers like Ohio Health specifically, I think we've been really progressive in this area over the last couple of years, is looking at our benefits offerings for employees and thinking about them through the lens of social determinants of health, right? And I think it's been a longstanding kind of tradition for a lot of employers to think about the financial benefits of work and how you can do things like change the way you approach election processes for your 401k or 403b, to ensure that more people have broader access to wealth building mechanisms like that. But I think more and more recently, we've heard a lot about the role that employers can play to help mitigate some of the longstanding and disproportionate student loan debt that certain Mm -hmm. populations of employees bring to the table. And there are a lot of creative things that companies are doing with their benefits plans to be able to start to address it either through 
counseling in ways to make it less burdensome up to and including 100% student loan forgiveness. So I think that's huge. It's not uncommon in a lot of organizations to be able to access a tuition reimbursement program, for example, to advance your education. But for employees in certain professions that aren't high wage, uh, coming up with the money to prepay for tuition is a huge thing. Yeah. So moving from a tuition reimbursement model to a direct pay from the employer to an institution model is a huge benefit that addresses both educational attainment and um, financial burdens. I think recently we've heard the resurgence of people talking about, can you provide like a child care benefit? That's another thing, right? You're thinking about how can you support families? Oftentimes in multi-generational households, you have to manage the logistics of a number of schedules between adults and children that compete and conflict and go in different ways. And the ability to have childcare is a huge, huge factor in a number of people's ability to pursue work. And in some spaces, they've done studies where they've shown that childcare and the impact of childcare on uh, women workforce in particular can account for most of what we see as the pay equity gap between men and women, particularly in healthcare. Right. So there was there was wow. a study that I just learned about where they went in and they looked at the pay equity gap between men and women in a healthcare organization. And what they learned was that the majority of the women were primary caretakers for their children, and they were also part of the nursing population. And so when they analyzed what it what accounted for contributed to the pay gap, most of the pay gap could be attributed to hours worked. And what they saw were that women weren't picking up extra shifts because of the way the shifts were structured and that childcare burden, particularly at the start of the day, prevented them from working extra shifts. And if they could pick up those extra shifts, the pay gap would have been eliminated. So being able to provide a childcare benefit in that situation, for example, could do everything to close the pay gap between men and women in that particular healthcare system. So I think childcare is becoming a thing that was in vogue, it fell out of vogue, post-pandemic is back on everybody's plate. And then I think the last thing is thinking about how we can step into spaces and provide additional types of access to counseling support for things like housing, which is huge. There's probably not a year that goes by where I don't hear leaders talking about discovering that one of their employers was homeless and living in a car and reporting to work every day, right? That story is far too common in uh, 2022. And so you know, I think some employers are doing a lot to think about how they can help housing counseling programs that help them build wealth, strengthen their credit score, get access to no down payment programs and things like Habitat for Humanity that allow them to build some equity as they pay rent toward ownership. I love those examples, Ernest. I would add, and certainly this is a opportunity for employers to look outside of their sector too. Sometimes we benchmark like organizations. So hospitals, we only look at what other hospitals do. Universities only look at what other universities do and et cetera. And I will say, I have led some programs that were addressing social determinants for associates and employees. One of which was exactly something like what Ernest was just describing, where another organization I was a part of, we provided home buyer education on a regular cadence. So I think sometimes employers think we did it that one time and nobody came. And so you stop doing it, but it takes a while for things to catch on. And frankly, we want them to be doing the work. And so maybe that time didn't work for them. So offering things over and over, communicating things over and over, because there are consistently these gaps 
for our associates, but then taking it to the next level, identifying the communities where you're an anchor, right? So I think hospitals, meds and eds, especially get a lot of community influence around playing a role as an anchor institution in a community. But for an organization like ours, we have a presence in nearly half of Ohio's counties. And so thinking about where we're an anchor and a leader and identifying areas where we could be incentivizing our employees to purchase a home. So when we talk about affordable housing, we could do a whole other podcast about that, but I will tell you the greatest tool is to own, right? And so that is guaranteed. I always tell people home ownership is rent control, essentially. So a lot of our associates may be afraid of that, but what it gives them is the opportunity to be stable. And us as an organization can assist in that journey. So the ideas that Ernest shared with homebuyer education, down payment assistance from the organization, a program that I ran, we gave that down payment assistance, but it also came with a five-year forgivable contract on the deed. So that also is an employee retention strategy. If you want people to come work for you and want to work for you, you start solving some of the problems that might make it challenging, but then you also have this built-in retention. So that's an opportunity for sure with home ownership. A home is a place where a job goes to bed at night, right? And so we're creating jobs. Are we also creating homes for people to live in? Similarly, with transportation, if there is an employer that has built a hub of employment somewhere where there are not a lot of people that live nearby. Maybe it's a newly emerging market. Maybe it's on the edge of town and the bus system doesn't go there, which is true for us often in central Ohio, creating the opportunity for people to do park and ride and get to work. Whatever you can do to alleviate the stress on your workers also alleviates the stress on your business too. So it's definitely worthwhile, I think, for employers to think about that, co-locating daycares, making arrangements with large daycare providers um, to give preference. I can say as a mother who at one point was looking for daycare, for me, I was very fortunate that it wasn't so much the cost, but it was, was I going to be able to find a daycare that had space for my child at a price that I could afford? But having these relationships with daycare and childcare support services that are open in the hours that you need them too. So thinking specifically and selfishly about healthcare workers, our shifts aren't nine to five. So having access that fits their needs is something that employers should have a stake in. And it's more than, I think, as especially in light of all that we've all endured over the last several years, it's more than what they're getting paid. It's what they're doing in their work that makes them feel supported, makes them feel like it's a good use of their time and it's the right level of flexibility. So these benefits aren't cheap, right? So I don't want employers to hear Ernest and I saying, you have to do this, but there is actually an opportunity cost to not doing it. You're going to keep retraining employees because you can't sustain your workforce. So really asking the questions of your employees. In healthcare, we're growing our muscles around consistently and effectively screening our patients for social determinants of health, but employers should also provide ways for employees, both anonymously or otherwise, to describe where they're having a pinch in their life, where they live, how they're living, and how it's holding them back. So there definitely is a, a long-term reward to making these types of investments. My head is going in so many different directions with all of the great insight that you guys are sharing. So thank you so much for that. So I've got a couple things, a couple follow-up questions, a couple thoughts. One question that I have 
because you guys would be more the experts here. It seems to me that rarely would it be that someone's just dealing with one particular issue. Like that might be the case, but I feel like if, if employers are alleviating one issue, then that means that there is now support to then deal with something else. And I guess my example there would be if you're doing something to help with someone's student loan debt, that they can now use those dollars for child care, or they can now use those dollars for better transportation, et cetera. So I feel like it may be impossible to assist in every single aspect, but if you can do like what you said, Autumn, where you're assessing your population, you're learning about them and figuring out what is top of mind for them, what the bigger issues are and starting there, that it may also impact other social determinants as well. Absolutely. Sometimes I think we, as leaders, we may dive in and say, we know what's best. We know, I heard on the news yesterday that there's a <laughs> lack of affordable housing in Central Ohio, and that's not a problem I can solve, so I'm not even going to try, right? I, I mean, I certainly have heard these conversations over the years at board tables, right? It's not our role, but I do think starting first with asking your associates and then figuring out, is this something that we could reasonably solve as a benefit and what would be the benefit to us as an organization? So the example I just gave around giving down payment assistance, that program that I ran in another organization, people had five years where they had to maintain their employment and maintain the house that they purchased as their primary residence. I can count on my hands with hundreds of people who took advantage of that program, how many times people had to give it back because they left the organization. And often it was a spouse relocated, that sort of thing. But it did make them, one, feel proud that the organization was investing in the communities where it was located. But then two, it gave them stability in their house. So first, ask the question, really ascertain it. Ernest is totally on point with, we consistently hear of cases of people being homeless, but they also don't have childcare, right? So picking the things where the organization can make a reasonable investment and if it's not your business, which most of the types of organizations that might be thinking about this may not be universal housing providers or childcare deliverers, but there are partnerships that can be formed. And I think there really is a tremendous power in partnership here for a number of reasons. One, you get your associates the experts, right? So you get them to the experts in home buying, education, and childcare. But it also allows your associates to have the dignity of having the experience with that provider external to the workplace. So I have heard anecdotally from other colleagues across the country that they have tried to create the solution within their own organization. And sometimes it lands well, right? There's no stigma to sending your child to the workplace daycare. But other times people don't feel as comfortable taking the free food that might be offered in the workplace because their family needs a meal. And so partnerships, one, allow you to stay focused on your core business and be able to measure what's happening in that pathway. But then it also gives your associates some dignity and honestly autonomy, because often you're partnering with the organization that they could have sought out prior to your partnership. And I love that you mentioned that too, because there can be stigma around this when mm -hmm. you are finding ways to learn from your population and ask questions in a way that doesn't make people feel stigmatized is really important. One more thing that I wanted to touch on related to this question, that's something that Ernest, you and I, I think, talked about this previously, is about workplace culture. And I think it's because, well, probably you're just extremely knowledgeable about this, but also we had talked about 
a Brene Brown podcast that we had listened to where they talked about how a toxic workplace culture, there's a study around this, it increases your risk of developing a chronic condition by 35 to 55%, which is massive. That was shocking to me. So is there anything else that you can add around that? Because I think about that so much when I think about, again, not everyone having the luxury to pick the perfect job or to jump to a different job. We don't all have the ability to do that. And so how much influence the culture of the workplace can have on your health. Yeah, you know, culture is so key because culture really is the expression of how employers define their responsibility relative to the social health of their employees, right? And employees get that. It goes to how included they feel. It goes to how much they feel like they belong. And all these social determinants in and of themselves impact health in a particular way and can exponentially lead to poorer health outcomes. And then you combine that with how they feel when they show up to work because of the workplace culture that they are immersed within. And it becomes a compounding effect. And so one of the things that I think has gained a lot of attention over the last three years, in particular, in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space is the role of things like institutional racism, unconscious bias, and, and how they factor into the culture of an organization. And organizations have, in many respects, uh, taken pledges to build anti-racist culture, right? Because they understand that the things that happen, the way that people feel, the environment that they're in, how welcome and, and embraced they are once they arrive, when they come from all these different places, matters to their overall health and their health matters to the productivity of the business and the productivity of the business ultimately affects the bottom line, right? So culture is a secret sauce that enables organizations to be great, but in order for organizations to be great, they have to take care of their people. And this social determinants of health spectrum that we've been discussing I think it starts to help crystallize all the different ways in which people might benefit from an employer stepping up and thinking differently about their culture. But I'll stress, as Autumn said, organizations have to be smart about what they're really good at and what they need to partner with somebody else to take care of. And I think that's the key. Yeah, that's a great point. Because I feel like this is a tough one. And when we talk with employers about culture, culture of well-being, culture of wellness, and how we make impact. It feels, I think, often overwhelming versus just some sort of program or something that focuses on the individual and behavior change, which is there can be really good stuff there too. But what should an employer do? How do they get started to both assess their culture and what types of interventions are there? You start by beginning to get to know your workforce, right? The types of information and data that Autumn mentioned, often we collect on patients around social determinants of health. You can find ways to gather that same information about your employees. And that starts to give you a picture of who your workforce is, where there might be needs that are greater or lesser in, in some categories and where you have big opportunities. So I think that's one place to go is to start to collect social determinants of health data on your employees. And, and more importantly, I think it's you have to create opportunities for those employees to have a voice and talk to you directly. And you have to be open and authentic and sincere in your listening and do that on an ongoing basis, not just in the once a year 
associate engagement survey that just about every organization does, but you have to do constant continuous listening. You have to go to the places where people are on the front lines. You have to talk to the groups of employees that you have that might not be as well represented in some of the rooms of power in your organization, right? So you have to go talk to the people who are working in supply chain and the distribution center. You have to go talk to the folks who are delivering meals and food service. You have to talk to the people who are your environmental services people keeping the organization clean and tidy. And you have to hear what they're telling you. And you have to do it over and over again and build the trust so that they'll be candid with you and reveal those opportunities. And then you mobilize what you have at your disposal to start to take really strategic action and pick the thing that you feel like you can impact the most. It is a lot. In most cases, there's not a single social determinant that exists. Most of those things converge and you'll see 60% of the people in a given population will have two or more. And the more social determinants they have, the more complex and difficult it is to solve for the whole picture, but you pick one that you can impact the most and work really hard on that and find great partners who you can bring to the table to start to address some of the others. It is the power of, of just people having data. You know, I don't think we could ever overstate how critical that is because it all starts with good information. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) That's great. That's right. Yes. Okay, so I have one more question, and I think both of you on separate occasions have already mentioned a little bit about this, but just curious if you have anything else to add. So when it comes to social determinants of health, why is this a workplace issue? Why should employers care? What's the benefit to to employers, to leaders and organizations for this work in the context of what matters to them other than it just is important. I think for employers is twofold. Organizations are made up of people that live in a community. And so thinking about one, retaining your, your employees, having happy, healthy people who come to work every day makes you more productive and profitable, period. I mean, there's really no discussion, I think, beyond that point. If you want people to come to work and do the work that you need them to do, they need to be whole. And more and more people are choosing to work less and make a way otherwise. And so as many employers are desperate to have uh, strength in numbers and sustain their workforce, they need to focus on the things that are impacting their workforce. I think the other prong to that is just the identity of caring about the places where you work and where you make money. And When you look outside your doors, are you making the communities that you're working in better? And if you're not, then that's an opportunity to invest. And for us, I think it's easy to assume that only healthcare should care about this, but similar to any other business type, our business happens inside, but what happens outside is absolutely also our responsibility. And I think, call me altruistic, but I do feel like it's all of our responsibility to build a healthy community. And finally, I would just say it's possible to have a healthy, thriving community. There's nothing impeding us from doing that except for our own will to chip in. And I think it's an unfair selection to say, oh, that's not my core business or that's not my work. And if everybody says that, then we get nowhere and we still have people, particularly minoritized communities that are your employees and your neighbors that continue to suffer. And so I think it's just really our responsibility as organizations and as people 
to think about these things and consider how we create thriving communities. And I'll just add one more point onto that. Probably about a decade ago, I had a, a leader in my organization who would always talk about how we were in a war for talent. That was 10 years ago. And I think that statement is truer today than it's probably ever been in, in most organizations who hire people will agree. And the talent has the ability today to be really selective in where they go to work. And they're looking for organizations who do this kind of stuff, right? They're looking for organizations who demonstrate certain values that operate with compassion and care that are involved in community in that respond to the needs of their employees beyond sending a paycheck. Like, as a matter of fact, there are a lot of studies that have found people will actually accept less money to work for companies that they think are more socially conscious, more compassionate, and do more in the area around social impact. So from a competitive standpoint, in an era where talent is seemingly scarce, I think it's in the best interest of employees and employers to think about how they come together to create organizations that really respond to social determinants because it actually makes them more attractive in the long run. And that gives them the ability to better deliver on their mission. All right, you two. You guys are great as always. Thank um, you. It was wonderful. It was great talking with you all. Thank you both so much. No, that's oh, great. Thank you. Thank you. When listening to this episode, it really surprised me how many of these factors are actually within an employer's span of influence, such as providing a living wage, creating a safe and inclusive work environment, and offering benefits and resources that directly target social determinants of health. Autumn and Ernest showed us that we don't need to boil the ocean and solve everything, but we do need to understand the impact, ask questions, and start listening. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us for our next episode to well-being at work.